welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Well, good evening, everybody. And uh, as you can see, I'm back. And uh, as uh, Kevin was saying, yeah, you expected Wes, our youth pastor, to be here uh, speaking. And uh, that might be why you're here, you know. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> for you guys, uh, yeah, no, I'm here. You're stuck with me. But the good news is we still get Wes's better half, if you've already seen. Um, as he already pointed out, you know, if you have to choose between Wes and Beth, nine out of ten times you're going to go with, with Beth. And, uh, <laughs> so thanks for leading us in worship. And if you're watching Wes, we love you very much. All right. Well, uh, so we're following along the series that we uh, uh, started two weeks ago that we're working on together, which is really exciting. And that is, I am Jesus in his own words. Uh, seven times, as we said in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am and then he goes on to, in his own words, describe who he is. And, uh, of course, the reason he does that is because people in his society had lots and lots of different opinions about who he is. And uh, we still get that today. You know, some people think Jesus was a good but flawed moral teacher. Other people say he was just another Jewish rabbi that got into trouble with the Roman authorities. Um, you know, somebody who uh, wandered around preaching some of his own theories and then sort of lived off the charity of others and was put to death uh, for some crime that he committed. That's what some people believe. Um, some people, I actually Googled this. What do you think about Jesus? One person said that Jesus was a Bronze Age hippie, he said. Um, I'm not even sure if he's got his ages right, but he said... Uh, a being of enlightenment, you know, who sort of traveled, first of all, to India and then brought sort of Hinduism back and mixed it with Judaism. That was one theory. Others suggested that he was like the world's first socialist, you know, who led a political revolution uh, against the Romans that went sideways. And then lots of people believe he was just a myth, just a legend, just a fiction of imagination, right, who never really lived. But... Um, as we're going to see today, Jesus didn't leave it up to chance for us to figure out on our own who he was. He was very clear about it. Um, and he built off of something that uh, happened back when God met with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God told Moses his name. Uh, Moses said, who are you? Who do we say you are? Uh, what do we call you? And God said, I am who I am. He used the Hebrew word, Yahweh or Yahweh um, and God said tell the Israelites I am has uh, has sent you and called you to this ministry of freedom and so whenever Jesus says I am he's um, he's making this claim to be the same person that met Moses on uh, at the burning bush he's telling us that he's fully God even as he's fully man and uh, this is sort of captured in the creeds. The Nicene Creed, for example, says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And that's what we believe here at the well, as well as at Gateway to Church, part of our Alliance family. We all worship Jesus as divine. So last week we saw Jesus said, I am, and then he said, I am the bread of life. And uh, we learned that Jesus can satisfy the deepest needs of humanity, the spiritual need and, and the uh, emotional needs that we have for God. 
And tonight we're going to turn to our Bibles in John chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. And I'll give you a couple of seconds to find it in your own Bible. That way you can keep me honest. Make sure that what I said reflects a bit of what is on the page. John chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 12. All right, here's what it says. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then it says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Okay, so we'll just stop there. So I'm pretty sure that all of you have probably your own story about the dangers of wandering in the darkness. You could probably tell a recent story. But just for the record, Jesus says, I don't recommend it, wandering in the darkness. Um, and I'll tell you a story. A couple of years ago, I was uh, fumbling in the dark. I was in my bedroom and I was looking for my iPhone because that's the source of light uh, for me when I'm in the dark. And I, I wandered over to my bedside table and I had one of those Pixar type lamps, if you know what I mean, right? We all know those. And uh, instead of, um, of, of turning on the, the lamp, and by the way, there's this thing at the top of the lamp, there's this uh, switch that you just sort of squeeze like this and it turns it off and it turns it on. It sticks up about an inch. Instead of turning on the lamp, and uh, then looking for my phone in the light, which would have made it easier, I just reached down my fumbling hands and uh, kept in the dark looking. As I, as I leaned down, my open eyeball came into direct contact and shocking contact with that switch that sticks up about that far from the lamp. And I just immediately just saw stars and I had searing pain in my left eyeball. And it was unpleasant, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, you might expect, right, to stub your toe in the dark or stub your knee in the dark, but you never ex expect to stub your eyeball, you know? And, uh, you know, my eyes are open, never saw it coming. Those are the dangers of stumbling around in the dark. You have your own stories. In our text for today, Jesus sort of takes that physical danger that we all know and we've all experienced, and he applies it to the spiritual danger, which is even more real, is even more uh, urgent. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of, of life. And you know, I was thinking this afternoon as I was getting ready for this, I didn't have a lot of time to get ready for this, um, but I was thinking about some of the times when I've seen people walking in darkness. And, and sometimes when you travel around the world, it can be a little bit more obvious because you're just in a place where 
um, it, it's new to you and you haven't seen things before. I remember when I was in the city of uh, Hyderabad in India and uh, I watched as this man just stooped over top of a lifeless idol, said some of his prayers, offered a uh, gift of food, and he was hoping, I suppose, that one of the millions of Hindu gods would answer his prayer. Uh, one evening in the city of Bangkok, uh, this is going back about three or four years ago, I was with the missionary who wanted to show me the red light district of, of Bangkok. And, uh, and so we walked and I noticed just the look of a broken and desperate um, men who were there to exploit the, uh, the victims of sex trafficking. And it was, just, it was just a demonic place. I can't even describe it any other way. It was dark. It was dark. Um, but of course, walking in spiritual darkness isn't just in, for people in other countries, obviously. It's, it's very, very much a real part of our own lives. It's even in the church. Um, in my 27 years of working as a pastor, I've seen just the terrible effects of people who are stumbling around in the darkness spiritually. Uh, sometimes it's because of a terrible secret that they're living in the dark, you know. Um, this past week, uh, there was uh, uh, something that came to light about a particular pastor that uh, I really respected over the years. Um, and there was a secret sin that he kept hidden out of the light. And he kept hidden for, hidden for years. And it's just a reminder that um, Christians and even Christian leaders can stumble in darkness. Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness because it's not just praying a prayer. Following Jesus is living a life. It's not just that you prayed a prayer 25 years ago. It's that you're living a life where you're following Jesus and he helps you to live in the light. Something that I've tried to model and teach, I've done so very imperfectly over the years, but I've tried to model this I've really tried to teach this, is just the need for every follower of Jesus to live in the light, because he's in the light, the Bible says. And later in, those, uh, in the chapter here, Jesus will say those famous words that the truth will set you free. And that, that means like living in the light means that you're living with, uh, you know, telling the truth. As followers of Jesus who are forgiven and free, the good news is we can... We can let people know about the dark secrets, maybe not everybody, but shared confidential friends where you can, after repenting to God, you can confess to other people. It should be safe to do so. A number of years ago, I began a, an accountability relationship with a close friend of mine, uh, Jeff Roy. Um, he's a pastor in the Huntsville area, my, my closest friend. And ever since we began that kind of a relationship, we try to spend extended periods of time with each other multiple times a year. Get together, we snowmobile, we fish for musky, we uh, just sometimes get together and fix cars and stuff. Uh, and um, we really try to be intentional about sharing the substance of our souls so that I can at least tell you guys that there's at least somebody, in my case two people, my wife Krista and, and my friend Jeff, who I am living in the light with. Like, they know everything about me, everything there is to know. And so Jeff and I, for example, we uh, text almost every day. We call each other once or twice a week. And like I said, we get together uh, several times a year over maybe a night or two. I so appreciate that Krista releases me to do that. 
but um, as a husband, as a pastor, as a Christian who is trying to pursue holiness with all of my heart, I just know that there are some, some sins that would decimate my wife, my kids, and my church family. And so what I want to do is I don't want to wait until I sin to confess them to my friend. What I want to do is I want to be accountable about my temptations. I want to be accountable with him about, um, about um, just my struggles, my, my weaknesses, my desires. I want to talk about a desire to do something before I do it, if you know what I mean. Because there's something incredible about sharing the truth that just breaks the power of a secret over your life. And, um, and so before they blossom into full-blown uh, sin, I want to be living the light with my friend Jeff about desires and temptations first. You've got to confess stuff that's small before it gets big. To be completely transparent with a couple of people, I think it's just really life-giving. Um, and uh, what I actually find a little bit discouraging about this whole topic is that sometimes I feel like we've made very little progress at Gateway Church, where I've been ministering to now for, I think, 23 years. And I know this isn't completely true, but sometimes I just feel this way, that even though I've tried to live in the light as much as possible, even though I've taught about it from a biblical perspective and that Jesus is the light, when I look around, it sometimes feels like we've made very little progress on this particular issue. <laughs> I shared this with a friend actually two days ago when we were out on a walk, um, and he kind of encouraged me and challenged me and said, no, actually, lots of people are doing it. And then he shared the people that he was being accountable with. And so I realized maybe I'm being too hard on, on myself for the church. But friends, when we live as Jesus lived, you know, we'll walk in the light and, and we'll have the light of life when we do this. And it will be a life filled with joy. This past week, my friend Jeff and I remarked on how just life-giving that relationship has been, that accountability is. And I will state this categorically. I believe it has saved both of us from stumbling in the darkness and committing career-altering sin. I believe that with all my heart. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to do this thing called the Christian life alone. If you don't share life and do life with somebody else, you'll get killed. The enemy is like a lion. He's prowling. He's looking for someone to devour. And you've got to share not just the bad stuff, but the good stuff too, right? So at Gateway, um, we, we say it's necessary. If you're part of our pastoral staff, you've got to be in a, an accountability relationship in order for you to be employed by us. That's a requirement. Um, and uh, I have conversations like this with them multiple times a year. Uh, I say to my staff, it's understandable that a person who's a pastor would sin. We all sin. But it's not okay for you to sin and stay in the darkness. It's not okay for you to have a secret. If we find out you have a secret sin and you haven't been seeing your therapist about it and you haven't been talking about it with your accountability partner, you'll lose your job. Like that's just, that's just the gravity of what we're talking about here. Because... You, you know, we provide sessions of counseling to them every year. We expect them to do counseling. We provide and tell them they've got to be in an accountability relationship with someone. We just want to fight sin with every fiber of our being, no matter what that sin looks like. We want to model that for our church family. 
This is pretty heavy, sorry. <laughs> but I, I hope it's life-giving too, right? Because I hope you're encouraged. Like, in addition to having an accountability partner, I, want, uh, I also wanted to go even deeper. And so uh, I decided to do a life confession with a trusted friend a couple of years ago. Uh, a, another pastor, a confidant. And so my fellow pastor Shane and I, about three years ago, one day for like six hours straight, I just confessed everything that I could think of with God's help that I had done that I thought was sinful. Um, and what a blessing for him to pray over me and to uh, uh, declare that I was forgiven in Christ. Because, you know, I knew it up here in my head, but I needed it to sink deep down into my heart. And, uh, and we all do, don't we? And then what happened was we said another time when we got together and uh, we, I just listened to him as he confessed every sin that he could possibly think of. And uh, his took a little longer than mine, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so like we just spoke words of amazing grace to each other, that this is how God feels about you. And uh, I blessed him as he blessed me. And it's something anybody can do is a life confession, I think. And you'll find that it breaks you free from the darkness by, by dragging the secret out and into the light. Please understand, uh, I'm not doing this so that I can be sin-focused all the time. I'm doing this so that I can not be sin-focused all the time. Because, you know, we don't want to be carrying around this sense of guilt and shame when Jesus can, you know, said that we were forgiven. His forgiveness is greater than all of our, our guilt. And so we drag these secrets into the light so that we can live freely and lightly in his rhythms of grace, so that we can leave that in the past. I mentioned another pastor has fallen um, because of secret sin. And I was fascinated by something that he said. He said um, in his confession that he realized that he had repented to God, but that for healing to take place, he had to confess it to others. And unfortunately, he didn't do that. And he's created a real, a real uh, train wreck in people's lives as a result. And you know, I'm not surprised when that happens because the Bible tells us to expect people are sinners. We all are. We live in a broken world. But there's another part of me when I read that kind of thing or see it that just so very saddens me because of the victim of that person's sin because of the damage to the reputation of Christ in this part of the world, because of the devastation that it must create in their family and in the lives of the people that were under their spiritual authority. I could go on to name so many names of people that we all looked up to so much. Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, Ted Haggard, Mark Driscoll, James McDonald. Uh, there's so many others. The list just keeps on growing, which is so heartbreaking. Most recently, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, Christianity Today is a very well-known magazine and they published a report on their own culture and said that their culture has been just rife with sexual harassment against their own female employees. And so again and again, we just find that Christians are not living in the light of repentance of sin and confession with others. James chapter 5 says, confess your sin to one another so that you can be healed. Now there's grace from God that is greater than all of our sin and we have to remember that, but there are also dire consequences in this world when we don't follow Jesus, when we, when we don't confess sin when it's small or when it's at the level of temptation. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus who offers us the light of his life. 
Um, he invites us into a better life than that. Speaking of dire consequences, there was a friend of mine who um, uh, was in our district as a pastor. He left the ministry about four or five years ago, and he went back to being a policeman. But then accusations came out that he had sexually abused a youth at the church where he was a pastor. And after those allegations came out, he drove to a lonely place. He pulled out his service revolver, and he ended his life. And I'll never forget the day that I had to call his best friend and I had to break the news that Paul was dead. Friends, there are consequences in this world when we don't follow Jesus. He's the light of the world and he's the, his light is the light of life. And we can trust him to drag secrets out into the open with a trusted friend. After telling people that was uh, listening that he's the light of life, there was this group of religious leaders called the Pharisees that challenged Jesus, didn't want to hear what he was saying, right, you know? People who had a very strong commitment to the scriptures, these are people who are sort of the back to the Bible people of the day. They wanted to shine a light on the scriptures, but they didn't want the scriptures to shine a light on them. See? Eventually, these are the same people that convinced Judas to betray Jesus. These are the same people that convinced the Romans to kill Jesus because Jesus is somebody who called them on their sin and they were unwilling to give up their secrets. They love the darkness more than they love the light. In the previous chapter, John reminds us that Jesus actually spoke, the, spoke these words in a very particular place. Jesus spoke these words at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let me back up. The Feast of Tabernacles was an annual feast in Jerusalem where the people would remember how God led the people out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land. This was all under the leadership of Moses, as described in the book of Exodus, Numbers, and uh, even Deuteronomy. And, and one way, then, that the people of Israel in Jesus' day would remember uh, that Exodus was uh, to set up these tabernacles. We, we would call them tents or shelters. Uh, in their backyard or at the top of their roof, the people of, of Jerusalem would build these rough little shelters and they would live there for eight days as a way of remembering their uh, ancestors that wandered in the wilderness and lived in tents. And it was the context in which Jesus spoke these words about light and life. Something else for you to know is that the Feast of Tabernacles occurred late in the autumn, which was, the, um, it was uh, when the light of day was equal to the light of the night. It's called the autumn equinox. And, and the context uh, was that there was a light ceremony that they would have during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would set up these four massive, huge lampstands in the outer courts of the temple grounds. On each one of these lampstands were four enormous bowls of burning oil. And they would actually set it up in uh, the outer courts close to the treasury where the offerings were collected. They stood, get this, 75 feet high, and you could see them all over Jerusalem. Choirs of Levites would sing during the lighting of these lamps. Men would sing and dance in the streets. The whole thing was amazing. And it was said back in Jesus' day that if you have never seen this, the light ceremony for the Feast of Tabernacles, you've never seen a wonder in your life. These huge lights reminded them 
that there was a massive pillar of light that led the people as they were wandering in the wilderness. John tells us that Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. And so what this means is that Jesus was standing right next to these massive lampstands. This is where Jesus said he's the light of the world. And so Jesus is reminding them that just as the Lord guided them by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire through the wilderness, Jesus now guides us by his light. Jesus said his truth will set you free if you follow him. And uh, we all know that there's a sin problem that we all have, don't we? Jesus uh, came to reflect the light of God's glory and to take away the sin problem that separated us. We all have lying problems and pride and greed and lust and selfishness. Like Adam and Eve, the first thing that we want to do is to hide, not among the trees, but to often, like the Pharisees, hide under a facade of holiness, of, of hypocrisy. The first thing we want to do, like Adam and Eve, is to cover our sin, but not under fig leaves, but with secrets. But the gospel of Jesus is that our rebellion would not derail God's plan to fill the earth with light. And so he made a plan to rescue us from sin and darkness. And that plan is Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for us to be released from the dark prison cell of, of, of sin. When you receive the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus who died for us, when you believe in him and you receive him as Lord and leader, there's, there's an amazing thing that happens. The eyes of your heart are opened. You can see how much God loves you. You can realize that you've been rescued from darkness and you've been delivered into God's kingdom of light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let there be light in darkness, has made us understand that this light is the brightness of the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. And so friends, Jesus is the light of the world. And those who follow Jesus will not live in darkness. The moment you came to faith in Jesus, he invited you to follow him into a life where you love the light. In Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, like a city on a mountain, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't light your sorry, don't hide your light under a basket. Put it on a stand. Let it shine for all to see. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So let's ask the question, are we living in the light to be a light? Are you living in the light in order to be a light so that you can shine God's love into the darkest places of this world? See, to the extent that our lives do not reflect the love and the kindness and the mercy and the purity of God, are we repenting of that sin to God, but also are we confessing it to a trusted brother or sister in the Lord so that they can help us to live in a way that is more consistent with Jesus? Look, we don't have to do it alone. And that's my main point for today. It goes like this. The people who are wandering in the darkness are depending on us to live in the light so that we can live as the light. Because if we don't live in the light, then we'll never be 
the light of the world. Does that make sense? Many years ago, I heard a story about a life, a life-saving station, and it was it was uh, built right next to a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occurred. So the building was just a hut. There was just one boat, but there were a few devoted members that kept that life-saving station alive, and they were always watching the sea. And with no thought for their own safety, these lifesavers would go out day and night, just tirelessly searching for those who were lost and about to crash their boat. Some of the people who were saved and various other people in the surrounding community wanted to be associated with this life-saving station and uh, give up their time and their money to support this work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the life-saving station grew over the years. Some of the members of this life-saving station were unhappy that the building was kind of shabby and small. And so they felt that, you know, a more comfortable place needs to be provided for those who are being saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put nicer furniture and enlarged the building. Now the life-saving station was a popular gathering place for its members to come and hang out. And they decorated it beautifully, and they furnished it ex exquisitely, and it, it kind of became sort of a club, you know? Fewer members, though, were interested in going out on the sea to perform life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews who were specially designed to save lives for them. And the life-saving motif was still, it still prevailed. There was a ceremonial lifeboat that was placed in one of their showrooms in honor of all who had been saved in the past. About that time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some of them were from a, a foreign uh, country, couldn't speak their language, and all of a sudden this beautiful club was now in kind of chaos. So the com property committee of the life-saving station called an emergency meeting and decided that they would build a house outside the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up and properly instructed regarding the rules of how to be in the life-saving station. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership, and most of the members wanted the club's life-saving activities to stop because they were unpleasant. They were a hindrance to the social life of the club. Other members, however, said, no, life-saving is still the primary purpose of this club. So they, they said, we're a life-saving station, and they were voted down and said, you know, if you want to save lives, you can go start your own life-saving station down the coast. And so that's what they did. But as the years went by, the new life-saving station experienced the same changes that had occurred with the old. It evolved into a club. Yet another uh, life-saving station was founded further down the coast. Hist history over the years continued to repeat itself. And if you vis visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. And here's how the story ends. Shipwrecks are still frequent on those waters, but most of the people drown. Friends, the reality is that we were supposed to be a lighthouse 
and a, light save, a life-saving station. The churches often get comfortable and they no longer shine the light of Jesus into the stormy waters around them. But the first thing that happens is they get comfortable. They get comfortable with their own sin. They stop living themselves in the light. They stop talking about the reality of sin. They justify and minimize certain sin that they don't want to agree with God about. And they stop shining the light of God's love into the dark corners of their own hearts. That's what happens first. They have secrets that become strongholds that only the light of Jesus can break. They suffer in silence. Nobody knows. Like the Pharisees, they've got a facade of holiness. That's the first step that happens. The second step is they no longer then shine that light into the lives of others because if you're not the light of the world, then you can't be the light of the world. Their church turns into a club. They talk about how Jesus makes them feel nice and cozy, but they don't talk about that sin to put Jesus on the cross because that's weird. They don't talk about the wages of sin being eternal death apart from Christ because that's too, too uncomfortable. And so they fight among themselves about political and social matters and set up other life-saving stations while the world around them drowns. Friends, I'm calling us to live the adventurous life of living in the light. What next step is Jesus asking you to take this week so that you can live in the light? How are you being maybe nudged to become part of a, maybe a group of, of same gender guys or girls that you can just get to know better and share life with, or maybe prompted to meet with a friend in confidence to, to do a life confession and just drag every secret out into the light? How are you maybe just being prompted by Jesus to take that next step um, to see a therapist and to deal with some of the ongoing sin that is rooted in your emotional brokenness? I believe with all my heart that Jesus is calling his church to live a beautiful life of transparency and trusting others. Let's pray right now and ask him to just lead us into the light of his love. First of all, Holy Spirit, would you just help us to understand as we listen to you now in a moment of silence, how can I live more in the light this week, Lord? What would you have me to do to take the next step toward confession and transparency? Lord Jesus, all around this room, I believe there are ideas that are coming to mind for each one of us. And I believe that those ideas are coming from you, Lord Jesus, to take that step of courage. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that um, the well would be a beautiful place where it's okay not to be okay. A place, Lord, where it's okay to share in a trusted environment the ways in which we have fallen short. Because, Lord, we know that that's the only way to become more like your son, Jesus. It's the only pathway to holiness is accountability. 
Father, I pray that we would believe so much in your grace that it would overcome our shame that is keeping that secret in the dark. We just declare war on secrets, Lord Jesus. And we declare that you're greater than the darkness. Shine your light in, in our hearts, Jesus, so that we can be a light to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me.